on this episode, Subaru says it's not their fault their engines are blowing up, the catalytic converter mafia gets caught, and FedEx is a shady used car dealer. We'll end on an armless man that does more for car culture than most of us. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe wherever you're caching this podcast. Follow us on YouTube and Instagram for more content at 91octane. Let's start the show. <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John and let's get right into it. Subaru says, hey, you shouldn't be taking them to the track anyway. A Subaru spokesperson uh, chimed in on the BRZ oil issues and they said, quote, Subaru of America stands behind the design integrity of the FA24, which is used reliably in thousands of vehicles. The FA24 is designed to, to perform within a wide set of tolerances for road use, and the BRZ is designed as a road car. Interesting approach there, Subaru. Um... This is kind of hard because this car, at least on the H6 side, is offered with a free track day. Uh, I mean, there's many talks about it being a performance vehicle. Now Subaru is coming out and saying, no, this car isn't designed to be on the track. It's designed to be on the road. And therefore, the problem is you for taking them to the track. This is a different position than Toyota would take based on how they've been marketing the car, but I guess Subaru decided to move forward with it anyway. I don't know if that says something about Toyota or Subaru's just trying to get ahead of all the problems that are coming up, but there have been a lot of engine failures reported on the Subaru BRZ and Toyota GR86. We've posted them about them multiple times um, on our social media. There's been at least two instances that I can confirm of with the 8.6 having engine issues and Toyota not honoring the warranty and then it going viral and then Toyota jumping in to handle the warranty. But because there's been a lot of problems, people have started to consider doing some experiments and finding out what is the actual issue with this car? Whose fault is it? Why is it that so many uh, issues with these engines are coming up? And the initial theory was that there was an excess of gasket sealant that was causing issues with the pickup tube, blocking the pickup tube from picking up oil. But now come to find out, through some testing, there might be some other things in play. So the oil pressure is dropping in high-speed right-hand corners. This is an issue that's common for a lot of OEM manufacturer cars. Uh, even in the E36, I've had to put in a baffle. Um, uh, you have to put in a baffled S2000s too. Um, I mean, it's something that it's a precaution that I think most track cars need to take, or most cars that are turned into track cars need to take in terms of a baffle. But when your car is marketed to be a track car, you would at the very least expect that baffle to already come in the car from the manufacturer or it being worked out in some way so somebody decided to do some tests and they tested three cars 
2022 BRZ, a 2022 GR86, and a 2017 BRZ as a control. And they put sensors and loggers in the car. They wanted to see what differences they saw in what areas of the track, and they took these cars to the track. And they observed severe oil pressure drops in right-hand turns with moderate G-forces or like rapid direction changes caused it to. Uh, elevation changes actually came into play in terms of oil pressure drops too. So that kind of says there's a lot of inefficiency in the design that's not letting the oil get picked back up into the motor. And so you get a moderate G-corner, it's going to starve the motor, and it goes kablamo. Uh, we've seen it in so many videos. And the, the most recent one that I posted, the guy wasn't even going that fast on the track. And he posted his whole session. It wasn't that he just posted one lap. He posted his whole session, and it was like the first lap out that the engine blows. So there are some serious issues here. And the FA24 is set to maintain a 50 to 60 PSI of oil pressure, but it was dropping to the 20s in fast right-hand corners. So there was a big difference. Um, is 20s enough? I don't know. It depends on the motor. Um but this pressure drop is potentially causing bearing damage, and this will be separate from the RTV issues. And with bearings, it's tricky. As a BMW guy, I know that with rod bearings, I mean, with the with the warrantied motor, I think it should be replaced anyway. I think a BMW gets replaced if you're under warranty and you get rod bearing issues, um, as long as you've kept up with the maintenance. Uh, but in this case. I mean, with BMW, they were sued. There was a class action lawsuit for the E92. I'm pretty sure the E46 had its own class action lawsuit as well. Never actually got anywhere because it was ruled it's a maintenance item. It needs to be replaced every so often. Um, it has nothing to do with, you know, the design or the engineering of the motor. And that's something that Toyota can lean on. And I think they have leaned on, um during this whole period of engines blowing up and there were specific corners in case you're wondering in case you're going out to thunderhill west in your 86 or your brz turns five and turns eight at thunderhill west and to put it in perspective too those are the turns that are causing the worst oil pressure drops for that car it you know, who's to say if that's aggressive or not, but I mean, wow, you've got two turns on each lap where there's potential catastrophic damage that can have happen to your motor that that's, that's tough. And for Subaru's stance to be, Hey, you're not supposed to be taking it on the track. Anyway, the car was designed to be on the road, not to be at the track. That's a, that's a huge to put it, politely they're turning their back they're turning their backs on the subaru community i think i mean i see so many subarus out on the track all the time a huge portion of their customer base are track cars it's not only uh their customers i'm sure the road going subarus probably sell more but it's a good portion of their cars where now those are owners are going to be thinking well Am I if I want to continue tracking, do I have to get another car? Cause I've said before, if I wasn't tracking an E36, or for some reason something happened to the car, or I sold it or whatever, and I wanted to get another track car, it was an 86. But with 
all this news that's coming out about that motor and the issues, the catastrophic issues, I don't think I'd buy one. Um, and if I was an owner of one, I'd be worried about taking it to the track enough to enough to an enough point that I might consider selling it. I think, because then if I mean if the engine blows, then it's worthless. And what do I do? Just get another engine? And I guess eventually someone's gonna find out how to strengthen all the weaknesses. But I don't think we're there yet in terms of what needs to be done to that motor in order to make it reliable. Um, and it seems like the issues that are happening are in mild track driving. Granted, any track driving is more aggressive than street driving, but it is relatively mild from what I've seen in the videos. So it's a little ridiculous. But what's even worse than having this response is having no response, which is what Toyota did. They have absolutely no response to everything that's going on. And this is what they do. Like they, they're kind of saying we did nothing wrong. Then they let kind of let the news cycle go and then try to behind the scenes fix everything after a while once they get enough blowback um, and continue as such. I don't have the numbers for total number of cars uh, that this has happened to. You know, with meme culture, it's hard, hard to tell sometimes based on social media noise whether the issue is super widespread or fairly limited. But you do hear it more than other cars out there, right? There are a lot of these problems that you're hearing um, specifically to this car, and you don't really hear it too much in other cars. So just based on that, I mean, it seems like it's a more significant number. What's interesting, though, is the warranty issues. And it, it seems a little senseless to not be prepared for this eventuality, really. If you are marketing that these cars are good for the track, then you have to know people are going to take that as if I take it to the track, it's going to be warranted, uh, warranted, and if something happens, I can have it replaced. I, I have that security. Um, and they're not the only company that does that. But the what they do do is hold strong on not having to fix the actual car. And I think that's a mistake. I think that's a mistake. I mean, if they're going to say that this is not a widespread issue, right, that there are thousands of cars that are out there and reliable, then, okay, fine, warranty the ones that are messing up. If, if it's not a high volume of cars that this is happening to, fix them. The only reason I think they would not want to fix them is because it, if it truly is a high uh, volume of cars that this is happening to. So they're going to fight it tooth and nail. Financially, I can see how that makes sense. Long term for the brand, I don't know. I think that sounds that seems a little painful. That's a hard stance to take, I think, for a performance vehicle sports car in your lineup. And what's interesting is that GM, of all companies, um, sort of has a better system for this. They actually provide prep guidelines for their track-capable cars. They market the Camaro in a similar way that the 8.6 is marketed as a track car, especially the ZL1, um, you know, the Corvettes, the CTSV Blackwings. Um, and as long as you follow those prep guidelines, the dealer will not de deny your warranty claim. It's not vague. It's straight to the point. You do the things on this list and we'll make sure that your warranty is covered. Easy peasy, right? Because they know how reliable their product is. 
Toyota and Subaru are keeping it vague, and it seems almost intentional. I don't know for sure. It could be that it's not intentional, but it seems like they're doing it intentionally to hopefully let this blow over and sort of give them the leverage if something bad does happen, that there's no language in there that says, if you do this, 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 and this, we'll cover your warranty claim. Maybe they can charge less for the cars as a result. Who knows? But GM does it. And on this in this prep guideline, they have break-ins, uh, break-in procedures, break-in miles, cold and hot tire pressures for road course, drag, sustained high-speed runs, alignment specs. They even have listed license plate removal to improve airflow in track situations and then suspension tuning recommendations as well. I mean, you're talking from caster, camber, toe, uh, sway bar settings, anything that can be set in the car, they've got it dialed to whatever they think their perfect specs are. And as long as you're driving that way and something happens to the car um, mechanically, they will warranty it. Easy peasy. Why not do that with the Toyotas and the Subarus? Maybe it's that they're not rel as reliable as we think they are, which sounds ridiculous if to say Toyota and reliability aren't almost the same word at this point. But it's a little iffy with this motor. Um, I wish they did something uh, like GM is doing or maybe eventually coming out, come out with something like that or just come out like Subaru and say, hey, you know what? We messed up. These cars aren't for the track. Stop taking them to the track. You know, if they really aren't for that and we're not going to replace them, just say that so then we can all move on to other cars. But that is nuts. The Subaru Toyota saga continues. Subaru has now pulled out and said, nah, just don't track them and there won't be a problem. Now, catalytic converter theft is so lucrative that there are now theft rings popping up regularly. We've covered this previously with you know rings of five six people that get together and cut catalytic, catalytic converters off and they're collaborating with some junkyard or somebody to sell them um and now in philadelphia a towing company has been charged with a multi-million dollar catalytic converter theft charge um a ring of 11 people were charged for a essentially organized catalytic converter crime scheme T tdi towing in philadelphia bought 8.2 million dollars worth of catalytic converters over three years in three years so what this is saying in three years they paid out 8.2 million dollars to people that were stealing catalytic converters and bringing that over to them they were clearly making way more than that if uh, they're buying these catalytic converters from people. And it looks like the people that they were buying from were all sort of the repeat offenders. They were just working together with them to receive the catalytic, con catalytic converters. They'd pay them and then move on and sell the, uh, the precious metals out of that catalytic converter to then make their money. They found surveillance footage that shows individuals removing converters from cars at TDI towing. So this actually happened on premises as well. And the Bucks County District Attorney aimed to put TDI towing completely out of business. I think, I mean, they, 
I'm surprised they're saying that and not something worse. I mean, $8.2 million worth of catalytic converters, and they were paying on an average $175, no, $300 uh, for each catalytic converter and converting about 175 of those per week. So each week, 175 cars on the road, 175 people woke up, walked out the door and said, what, or turned on the car and said, what, why is this thing so loud? That sucks, man. I'm, I'm really glad they're catching these people. Um, so this is, this is the first time um, TDI towing has been in trouble for this, uh, but it seems like they had been following them around for a really long time. There are 27 law enforcement agencies involved in investigating this across Delaware. And Michael Williams, the owner of TDI Towing, is considered the quote-unquote kingpin of this ring. I mean, when you're, if you're turning millions of dollars in stolen, stolen catalytic converters, I mean, that's, this is definite, definitely mafia level. Um, I mean, let's say they doubled their money, $16 million in total in three years in this scheme across even across 11 people that's and it's all under the table right it's all cash deals too that's a lot of money i'm curious how they actually tracked what the total is and how many they sold i guess they were keep, keeping track of it in some books and that's how they caught it but six employees including michael bruce eric simpson kevin schwartz patrick hopkins lisa davalos and a juvenile were charged Four additional suspects involving cutting converters are Anthony Davalos, Michael Evangelist, Gary Shirley, and Richard Page, who is still at large. They're going to get you, Richard. They're going to get you, man. I don't know that, especially nowadays, whatever your cut of that $16 million was, it's not enough. They're going to get you eventually. Um, and it's wild because for a little while it seemed like this issue was getting better. It seemed like I was seeing less postings on my Ring app of neighbors complaining about their catalytic converters being stolen. But it turns out it's only gotten worse. And the reason why they're taking these catalytic converters is that they want the rhodium, the platinum, and palladium that are in these catalytic converters. But what happened was during the pandemic, the supply chain issues made it harder to get those metals, therefore increasing the value of these catalytic converters. And that's why we're seeing more instances of organized crime now taking this on because it's very, very lucrative. I know it's not great for the environment and maybe there's something else we can do, but maybe we could just get rid of catalytic converters. I mean, that's probably a bad idea uh, for the environment, as I said. But man, like, it's wild to think that you can create a multi-million dollar industry off of stealing one part from a car. And 175 a week doesn't even sound like a lot between 11 people, say 10 people, if we don't include the kingpin actually doing this stuff. That's that's crazy. Uh, I, I don't know. We need to find a different system, a cheaper system with catalytic converters where, I don't know, we're converting for, you know, 10 bucks. That would sort of reduce this issue. But there's just so, so much money in this. 
I don't see it stopping. We got to find something else to replace it. And I think at this point, no one's going to invest the energy in sort of the science of replacing it because they'll probably just think, okay, well, we're converting over to EVs now. That's a transition that's happening now. Therefore, we won't need catalytic converters and eventually it'll just go away. I'm actually surprised law enforcement is getting as involved now. I mean, I think for the most part, people just handle it through their insurance. Cops don't really do much of, of, you know, about that other than like taking a report. I mean, what can they really do? They'll look out, I guess, for somebody stealing a catalytic converter, but the chances of you getting yours back, that is nearly impossible. Now, did you know that electric cars were around when Tesla, the Nikola Tesla, was around? I don't know if you knew when he was around, but he was born in 18, somewhere around 1850 and died in the 1940s. So it's pretty recent that he's been around. Now, Thomas Edison, who Tesla worked for, made the first electric car that did a thousand mile endurance run. And Edison believed that electric cars were sort of the future. And this was in 1910. In 1910, we're talking about the first electric car that did a thousand miles on a single charge, but it's sort of tricky. He believed that it was cleaner, it was quieter, it was easier to drive than gas-powered vehicles. Therefore, he wanted to promote this. And he was already supplying batteries to S.R. Bailey, who manufactured electric cars. Bailey Electric Phaeton was a showcase model that could drive 100 miles on a, on a full charge under ideal conditions. So there was already the technology was already kind of there in terms of trying to achieve this in 1910. So then they got together and they competed against gas-powered cars in this 1,000-mile endurance run. Um, it was challenging terrain at the time. Again, 1910, there isn't really a lot in terms of roads and infrastructure, but you could get, you could get 1,000 miles. And they successfully completed the journey, except they ran into, ran into issues of not having enough water for recharging. And this is where it gets tricky with the single charge. So these batteries, as long as you kept refilling the electrolyte, you could keep running the battery. It would still continue to provide power as long as you're refilling that electrolyte. Once they ran out of it, they weren't they had some delays in getting some and then they weren't moving as quickly. So it's sort of it's sort of similar to using a battery and then having to replace the battery as opposed to using a battery and recharging it like a Tesla is. So that's sort of the difference here. And that's why they were able to cross a thousand miles because they were just refilling this electrolyte and it was a little easier to do. Still a very impressive feat for 1910 and surprising that electric cars didn't become a more major focus uh, during this time. But in 1910, they weren't as motivated about climate change and keeping uh, you know, smog down, I believe, right? We're still in the middle of a boom. I mean, we're well ahead of the Depression. Uh, all these new inventions are coming out. This is the age of Tesla and Thomas Edison. Uh, so there's a lot of things being invented, a lot of industrialization happening. Um, so there's a high potential for this to be successful, but then also a high potential for gas-powered vehicles to outrun them completely because in a lot of ways, they were a lot easier to manage 
um, a lot easier to manage the infrastructure for it and probably propped up a lot more industries than the electric car would at the time. And so eventually these electric cars lost to the gas fueled vehicles leading to the end of Bailey's electric auto company in 1915. It only took 15 years from an electric car to achieve a thousand mile run in one charge, quote unquote, one charge to its demise in 1915. And then Edison shifted his focus completely to other technologies. You can still find the electric car in his estate, now the Thomas Edison Museum in New Jersey. But it's wild that this technology has been around for a long time. I think when we were when I was growing up sort of learning about cars and stuff, I think Chevy had a venture in the 60s or so. I might be making that up, but it was it was somewhere early uh, in the mid 1900s that uh, they were experimenting with electric vehicles as well. And I thought that was sort of the genesis of the electric vehicle. Turns out we're going way back here to 1910 with electric car companies being around for a really, really long time. I know the technology wasn't there to achieve what we have now, and that's why we've advanced as much as we had recently with electric cars, but it is surprising that starting in 1910, now in 2023, we're seeing the real shift in electric cars. There was a big period there where people weren't investing in electric cars. I remember electric cars being mostly like solar power hobby cars. And it'd be something that you see at some like some variety show, like some some out there tech guy with a lot of money and loving the hobby was building like solar powered cars, but they could only go like 10 miles an hour because the technology wasn't there. So there's always been sort of some experimentation, but never to the degree that we received now. But it is wild that we go back that far for electric cars. Now, for a company that you probably never heard of, some of you probably have. I had recently, but not for most of my life, Lordstown Motor Corp. They just went bankrupt. So you don't really have to look them up and understand who they are about and what they are. They just went bankrupt, and they are an electric vehicle startup uh, that was doing work with GM. So they actually warned of potential failure nearly two months ago, said that, hey, we're in trouble. Something's going to happen. We need help getting out of this. Um, and they had already announced approval to ship their first batch of their new model, which was an endurance pickup. They wanted to make trucks and, uh, they were built in an old general motors pl uh, plant that was purchased by them. They actually built cars for GM in this plant. They built the Chevy Cruze and they built the cobalt over the last 10 years. What's interesting though is that there is a GM scheme theory here. According to some, Lordstown was a strategic move by GM to get around the UAW, the United Auto Workers uh, Union, and they wanted to close the plant. So a way to get around the union was to furlough the plant, sell it to Lordstown, and then provide Lordstown enough support to sustain the company and keep the plant operational, but keeping the activity limited. They're not really going to be doing much. They might be inventing a truck. They're going to move slowly. We'll see how they figure it out, but they're not doing much. But we're going to give them enough money so they can float around and stick around for a while. 
And at the time, the UAW didn't really oppose this action because they thought, hey, Lordstown is an electric car company. Electric cars are booming right now. The future is going to look great for us. So this is going to cause a boom in jobs. This is great for the union. Let's keep going. Now that the plant is closing, which comes as no surprise because they announced it two months ago. They were like, we're in trouble. Something's uh, not really going to pan out for us here. Um, and several years have passed since GM sold this to Lordstown. So the responsibility is not really on GM anymore. So the theory being that GM found a roundabout way to get rid of this plant as a financial decision without having opposition from the union, the UAW. Um, they knew that Lordstown wasn't really going to come up with anything, or if they did, cool. But if they didn't, they just wanted to get rid of that plant. They didn't want to have to deal with it, and now they got it in this uh, bankruptcy procedure because Lordstown is selling their design, the endurance pickup. They're selling that and also selling all their assets. So they're completely done. Someone else is going to pick this up. I don't know who. I, I would imagine it would have to be another EV company that can absorb it. But, I mean, who's going to want a truck that was designed by somebody else? There might be, like, the factory that they can make use of, but I don't know if anyone was going to want to buy that truck. Even Karma, who they made that the – I believe it was a Karma Fisker uh, for a little while, and they sold the Karma name, but now they made a completely different car. So that I understand, but for them to sell – the car design, I don't know. I don't know. I guess the engineering is something that another company could benefit from, and they just change the outside of it. That's probably what's more likely to happen. But, it, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because GM has done deals with two EV companies, uh, one Nikola and the other one Lordstown, and I think Nikola was a complete scam. Like the owner of the company like ran off with the money like there wasn't ever a real company it was sort of like a theranos play where, where it was all a scam so someone at gm is not making some uh, good decisions or you could argue that gm is making great decisions because they got rid of this plant i still don't think it's good i mean that's sort of bad for all the jobs and the opportunities in the industry but if they're scheming that way i mean i i get it right they're trying to keep money in their pockets it's what they're it's what they keep fighting about. So goodbye, Lordstown Motors. Uh, goodbye, the endurance pickup. I think there's plenty coming up in the market where, you know, this will be a, be a tiny blip. But it's crazy to think that, you know, these companies are using each other like chess pieces and getting rid of massive assets like entire factories. Now, American Alpine fans might be able to rock their brand soon ish soon ish alpine uh renault's sport car sub brand will expand to the united states and asia in 2027 now before you get excited before you get excited it's 2027 i just got done talking about evs and that's the major point here ceo laurent rossi believes that the introduction introduction of comprehensive range of sports cars will strengthen their market share in Europe and Japan, and then they'll move into USA and Asia. Alpine's upcoming electric lineup will include seven new models and three launching before 2027. So the ones launching before 2027, of course, are going to be in Europe and Japan. 
Um, and then in 2027, it will be followed by arrivals in USA and Asia. The initial models are expected to be um, a Renault 5 based hatchback, a sporty mid sized crossover, and the successor to the A110. That's the sports car everybody loves. Now, the hatchback arrives in 2024, in 2025, the crossover, and then in 2026, the A110. At least two models from Alpine's Dream Garage are expected, expected to be available in the U.S. in 2027, possibly the crossover and the successor to the A110. The major thing being here, though, is that most of these are going to be electric cars. Uh, we're probably not going to get the ICE versions of these vehicles, which is probably something that you know everybody would want to see. And I think we're going to start seeing an influx of brands that we see across the seas, right, uh, over here in the stateside, because moving to EVs means less emissions restrictions and therefore less red tape for these companies to cross in order to get cars over here. They really just have to worry about safety features. And as long as we have the infrastructure, which the U.S. charging infrastructure is going to be huge. It's already huge. It needs to improve, but it's already massive. So if you're making an EV car anywhere around the world, you're going to be motivated to sell it here because there's already a major infrastructure in terms of supporting it. Therefore, it makes it easy for consumers to want to purchase them. And so I think we're going to see more brands like Alpine, even Renault. Uh, I don't know, more crossing over here with EV options, which is cool. It's always nice to have new options. It would have been nice to have the A110, you know, the ICE version of the A110 out here. But it is what it is. At least you'll still be you still be able to rock the Alpine name, um, which is cool. I think if there's more competition in the market, we'll just ensure more sporty and a bigger variety of performance vehicles um, and even if it's an ev a110 i'm sure it'll perform well alpine has a great reputation and it'll be nice to see what they come up with once they bring over here so 2027 you only have to wait four years that's not that long i mean we've been waiting forever i don't know that alpine has ever ex existed in the u.s uh, that I'm aware of. Maybe at some point. I guess I should have researched that, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's still around. Now let's talk about shady used car dealers. Shady, shady, shady. FedEx seems to be the shadiest used car dealer, allegedly. Allegedly. So uh, a federal class action lawsuit accuses FedEx of participating in the largest odometer fraud scheme in U.S. automotive history. They stand accused, right? So it's still alleged. But let me read that again. A federal class action lawsuit accuses FedEx of participating in the largest odometer fraud scheme in U.S. automotive history. I guess if you're going to do something, you're going to do it big. But this makes them the shadiest used car dealer in U.S. automotive history. Tom Layton, a commercial truck dealer, discovered the discrep discrepancies in the odometer readings on trucks sold to FedEx contractors. And that's where it started. After some more research, it was found that FedEx had changed the odometers, which led to the class action lawsuit. And in the report... Um, there's thousands of victims, you know, food truck owners, small businesses, 
all people that take on these trucks for you know their livelihoods um, are now part of this class action lawsuit. Um, it alleges that they replaced the odometers, failed to reset them to the actual mileage, and did not disclose that the replacements were done. So it very much feels like a malicious scheme, like we're going to try to get some more money out of this. It's wild because I feel like I, that's something they don't really need to do. I mean, are they not making money? That they need to be making money. Like, they're not making enough money off their core business, which is shipping. So they're resorting to shady used car sales. I feel like as a company that massive, I wouldn't risk my reputation are becoming a used car dealer. And, I mean, it's just get fair market value. I mean, these trucks have made you so much money. Like, why are you trying to pinch... What I can only imagine, you know, let's say 10 grand out of a truck. Maybe it's more than that. I don't know. I don't have the figures. Maybe it's more than that. It's a little more significant. But in the grand scheme of things, to a company that big, 10 grand, that's not, that's nothing. This seems like a very, very silly move. Um, but it seems to be widespread in terms of the instance of this happening i mean you're talking thousands of cars that are part of this class action lawsuit thousands of people at this point so it's sort of a company-wide initiative in terms of replacing those odometers like, is there another reason for replacing those odometers as far as i know not really i mean i i've never ever had to replace an odometer and i've driven old cars all my life so it's surprising to hear that they are replacing them at all what's the point of doing that um, I really hope there is another reason because, man, these are really like blatantly shady practices. It, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And I want to believe that a company wouldn't do this, but I know for sure that a company, a corporation would be capable of doing this. It just seems so unnecessary, though. So unnecessary. I mean, you're getting into so much trouble for what? 10 grand on a car. I mean, I guess on 10,000 cars, 10 or a thousand cars, 10 grand, you're talking $10 million. Okay. That's a good amount of money. I don't know. They should just focus on moving more packages. How about that? How about you focus on shipping more Amazon packages and making your money that way? That's your bread and butter. That's what you know how to do, right? You won't get caught messing up just shipping stuff. Just stick to that instead of swapping out odometers. Leave that to the shady used car dealers. It just doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. But new cars aren't exempt from drama this week either. I told you this was coming some episodes back. I don't remember how many now. But we have confirmation, thanks to Privacy for Cars, that your new car is collecting information about you. So vehicles are now becoming increasingly connected. You know, I, I've, I've talked about this a lot. You've got cars plugged into Wi-Fi constantly. You've got OnStar. You've got all these things. Now you've got cameras in your car. You've got voice controls that are always listening, right, for you to say the command or whatever it may be. Um, and so all that data it's consuming, and we've got computers now that we're driving in. And all that data they're receiving, of course, they're going to leverage that. They're going to sell that. They're going to use that. And so for the most part, 
uh, up to this point, data was fairly limited, but now we're increasing in terms of those abilities. You know, we have travel destinations, how fast you're hitting the accelerator, um, some seatbelt settings, really how safe you are, and even biometric data. Some cars you can do finger scanning or face scanning. And in that case, you're giving that uh, you're giving your car that data. Therefore, the company can take it as soon as it's connected to the internet. As soon as it has some sort of network connectivity, it can get that information. So, Privacy for Cars released a vehicle privacy report that revealed the extent at which this data collection is happening. And the tool analyzes manufacturer privacy documents and provides a privacy label for the data that has been collected and data that has been shared. So it's sort of keep on top of these companies and what they're doing. You can collect this information. It's a little hard to trust too, because I guess any ethical company would just provide all the raw data and then privacy for cars can parse it and view it and they'll know what's happening based on that data. But if a manufacturer is, uh, I guess, smart enough to analyze that data first, they can omit certain things to make it seem like maybe it's not as bad. We'll give them a little bit, just enough to let them know that we're doing it, but not enough for them to think that it's really malicious or it's something that they should stop. And most modern vehicles now can collect all types of data, a lot of the stuff that I called out and more. And there are estimates suggesting that they produce 25 gigabytes of data per hour. 25 gigs of data. Like go, this is a waste of time, but it's just sort of to put it in perspective, right? Go on your laptop, open a Word document, and just for like a minute straight, hold down the A button. And then save that document. And then look at how much, how the size of that file. It'll be kilobytes. To think about 25 gigabytes of data being collected per hour, these are massive, massive amount of data threads that are being collected and sold. And Toyota is a part of it. They collect personal information, driving behavior, in-vehicle preferences, and facial recognition data. So Toyota is now you know, getting called out for this, and it makes sense. They're using all this stuff for comfort features and convenience that helps them sell cars because most people are okay with giving up a little privacy uh, for that. But, uh, you know, this is sort of the same story as social media and everything, right? Where as soon as we get far enough with this, then it's going to be hard to come back from it. Honda is also involved with vehicle data, trip log information, driver behavior data, and voice command data. So the voice commands that you're giving the car are also being saved by Honda and Ford is in this as well with vehicle performance, driving data, precise location data, media analytics, and more. So we're getting more, the further we get down the list, there's more and more information being collected. And the if, if it was that the company was just using this information to build more convenient fit features, more... Uh, functionality into the car, a better user experience, and not doing anything else with that, fine. But this information is all now going to third parties because they make money off of that, and then these third parties are giving this information to insurance companies, to potentially police departments, right? 
now it's just we get into a slippery slope of information giving and so i think i'm just gonna stick to old cars and not have to worry about this i don't want my car connected to the internet now chev chevy is in this too jeep and ram so the stellantis company is part of this as well all collecting varying types of data braking events is part of this uh vehicle status in general face and fingerprint data uh man it's it's just it's a lot it's a lot and i know our phones are doing it too and we're all we always have our phones on us but we don't need another thing not our cars man not our cars that was sort of the last sort of uh hideaway right the car that was the last holy place where you could just sing at the top of your lungs by yourself driving on the freeway no one's gonna say anything but now honda has your audio of you singing in that car and they're gonna send it to somebody and they're gonna troll you about it that'd be the most harmless thing that could happen the worst that could happen is they sell that data to insurance companies and they're like hey this person's singing and distracted and that's why they got into accidents and we're jacking up their rates i don't know man I get it, like insurance companies. I mean, I'm I'm generally good on the road, so if they could see that and therefore discount you for that, um, fine. But I don't think that's how it happens. I mean, there's like good driver discounts and such, but it's never a lot, you know. Like, if you spend your whole life, like, say you spend 20 years driving without a single accident. And they're monitoring your data and everything looks good. Like, I mean, your insurance should basically be free, but that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is they're just going to analyze for the bad stuff to make sure that they're charging them more. And for the people that don't have accidents, they just pay a regular rate, which is still entirely way too much. But apparently insurance companies are struggling now, too. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily believe that uh but i did read recently that insurance companies are struggling and that's why they're refusing to pay out just with the volume of payouts that they have to deal with but with so many people paying insurance and it being mandatory in most of the country at this point yeah they're making money hand over fist i i doubt they're struggling insurance companies are not struggling usually they'll just charge us more and there's really nothing we can do about it other than shop for other companies but who has the time to do that now, anyway, let's get into our wrap-up segment, a bit of a feel-good segment for this episode, the armless man that does more for car culture than most of us. A 50-year-old man with no arms in Brazil builds toy cars with his feet. His name is Geraldo Pereira, and he has been doing this in Brazil for years, and he's somewhat a celebrity for it. He's, like, well-known. He sort of travels for where he does the work. I mean, it's it's minimal tooling that he has. He uses a handsaw to cut the panels with his feet. He uses a chisel to punch out the windows and such with his feet. He hammers panels together with his feet. And it takes him about an hour to build a car and two hours to build a truck. There's a video of this. It's crazy to see like the dexterity that he has in his feet it, it's it's like you're watching hands like that's how what would be the right word that's how fluid his movements are how 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 it seems like he's just used to it and the muscle memory is there too like if i tried to, there's no way 
there's no way I could get a nail into a piece of wood with my feet. No way. I'd have to practice that forever in order to make that happen. I'm sure that's what he did, but there's no way I could do that. I mean, it, it looks like he's doing it with hands as if I would be doing it with hands. Like, could you build a toy wooden car? You know, like, think about it. Could you build a toy wooden car with your hands? Just just thinking about it, right? No YouTube video on how to do it. No, nothing like that. Just thinking about it. Could you build a wooden car? I don't know. At first, I was like, nah, probably not. I, I probably couldn't figure this out. Uh, at least it wouldn't be that good of a car, uh probably the paint would be off that's another thing he paints them too so they're you know full-on models of course they're wooden cars they're not you know a intricate hot wheels but you know they're decent enough and then i remembered that in elementary school i built a shoebox car it was very square it was like the e36 right it wasn't rounded but i did shape it to look like a car where you know it had the kind of center the windshield looked like a windshield it wasn't just a box on wheels and i made windows and i made a i made it sort of a wind up and and it never i could never get the wind up thing to work so what i did was i made two essentially straight axles the wheels were connected and then i put a rubber band stapled to both and then i made one uh the rear axle uh, able to spin so then you would like spin the rubber band and then it should move as the rubber band unwinds the problem was i couldn't get anything that would generate enough friction with the tires so whenever the rubber band would unwind it would just like spin the tires and burn out i guess on the ground just spin with no friction and not actually move so it wasn't a functional car i guess you could use it as just kind of like rolling it around with your hand on a table but it never actually worked but in elementary school this was in second grade i built this i don't even remember why we did that i don't remember what project it was for but i built a car and i, I remember doing that i don't know why i chose to build a car i don't necessarily think i was really interested in cars like that yet i think uh I don't know. I just see maybe it seemed like the easy thing to do at the time, but I don't know. But you know, what, what does, what does this mean for car culture? When it said this guy does more for car culture than most of us. And it means that, right? Like just how I built that model car, that shoebox car. And I thought that was pretty cool that I did and kind of got me interested, a little more interested in cars. The cars that this guy is building is getting kids interested in the cars, right? Now they're little kids, and you can see them on the street. These are They're buying these cars, and they're in the videos, there's these little kids holding on to these cars. And that's now their first sort of taste of car culture. Now they're interested in cars. Oh, cool, look at this model little car. What can I do next? You know, maybe it's an RC car next. Maybe it's Hot Wheels next. Maybe it's not that big of a jump. Maybe after Hot Wheels, then you go into RC cars. Maybe after RC cars, then you go into... Uh, big wheels and after big wheels a go-kart and after go-kart a full-on uh build right a street build a drag build and then on a track build i don't know but that's how it happens and this guy has been for years making toy cars with his feet and selling them to kids around his community that's wild 
Um, I think that's pretty cool, and I'm glad that he's making a living doing so because I imagine living with no arms is probably very difficult. And being able to do something as cool as like build toy cars for kids and make a living doing that, that's pretty dope. It is a hard living, I will say. Like it's he's like sawing with a handsaw um on the street with this board and making these all these types of different cars and trucks, which is cool, but that is a lot of work. But then it's like then I started thinking, what is it about cars that we're all tr- drawn to them from a young age? You know, it's like almost like and I know it's not everyone. I'm speaking in generalizations here, but I would imagine most people listening to this has some flavor of this, right? Like when did when did we first start getting interested in cars? And we can think of, you know, oh, I got, you know, in like fourth grade, I think I got my first Ferrari F40 poster. And I remember just staring at that poster for hours in my room, just thinking, oh, this car is so cool. So cool. It's, it's like the equivalent of having like one Instagram picture and just staring at that picture all the time. It's so weird. But I did. But even before that, just cars in general were fun. Hot Wheels, seeing just seeing a Hot Wheels, you'd light up, you know, just vehicles for some reason were drawn to just the machinery machinery of it. And so I was thinking of like these er, like even making the shoebox car and, and going back until the I guess what I can remember from kindergarten, first grade and second grade. Um, and the toys always being sort of revolving around cars, the action figures that had motorcycles, which wasn't a car, but it was still a vehicle were cooler, right? Uh, the Batmobile, I think that probably answers it. There's a lot of cartoons that use cars as well, but I think that only helped sort of advance the desire. So it's like, you know, are we born with it? We're definitely not born with it. I don't know, but there's something there and I, I don't know how, I mean, it's like, I started thinking about the earliest memory and then it just kept hitting with another earlier one and another earlier one and another earlier one and so it just almost feels like it just happens naturally of course it's not happening for everybody not everybody's into cars but oh man i remember just for the longest time forever just wanting model cars or posters and then as soon as i was old enough i need to get my license i need to get my license i need to drive i need a car I got a job in high school because I wanted to drive. That was the sole reason. I didn't want any money. That wasn't the thing. I just needed money to drive because I wanted to drive. Man, it's been so long. And it's always, always about cars. And as I mentioned, one of my earliest memories is the Ferrari F40 poster. What is your earliest memory? You know, like where, what, or maybe the like most pivotal moment in your youth that said, okay, I'm going to be a car guy. And, you know, being a car enthusiast isn't 100% on all the time. There was a period, I think I was like 16 to 24, hardcore, hard. Then I fell out of the scene, stopped going to meets, stopped, you know, doing kind of the SoCal car, car culture thing. Life got in the way. But then once I figured that out again, then jumped right back into it and now full force into track life. You know, what was that pivotal moment in your life that made you think, okay, this is here to stay. This is going to be the hobby that will that I will default to for most of my life. 
right? As the property grows, as the bank account grows, start dealing with more and more projects and more and more headaches as a result of our passions. And there's so many choices in the car culture. This is what I don't understand about takeovers too. Cause I mean, you've got road racing, time trials, you've got tuner culture, drag racing, you've got low rider culture, drifting, uh, culture separated by manufacturers. You've got, I mean, the, the depth of car culture all across the country. I know I'm speaking for California now, but I would say all across the country. I know we have a, high, a bigger advantage in terms of car culture, but all across the country, you see it. There are so many options on how to have fun with cars. And all these people, these idiots still choose takeovers. Let's not give them any more attention. It just doesn't make sense. But I think it's pretty cool how much there is in car culture. I mean, off-roading, right? Overlanding, uh, so many things that involve vehicles in so many different ways. And I've met so many different people through cars. It's sort of like, it, it kind of, it's like, I've probably met a bigger variety of people through car culture than anything else. I will say that for it's probably the most diverse group in terms of pretty much every variable you can think of in terms of backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures and, you know, boisterous people, shy people, introverts, extroverts, ambiverts, everything that you can imagine. There's such a big mix. And when you start crossing over into different car cultures area like maybe go to a lowrider scene right or go to see the drifting scene for a while St go to the show scene for a little bit go watch some of the show cars and those pretty builds start taking on some road racing go to your first hpde that and there's just different pockets of different people and there's overlap in every single one that and that's kind of how it's happened with me where it's like I started doing autocross and autocross. I met people that did road racing, so I jumped into road racing. Uh, but even before that, uh, going to meets and through meets, meeting people that go to shows and through those shows, you know, eating up, uh, ending up at SEMA, uh, you know, th through meeting different people and people from all over country. Now I have friends from all over the nation as a result of cars. And that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Usually we stay in our little bubbles. Why would I reach out to somebody on the East Coast other than like cars, right? And the content that we put on social media, that makes it easier. I guess, you know, maybe 30 years ago it would have been unheard of um, to have, you know, friends all over the nation. But no, I mean, SEMA's been around forever. That's sort of where we all, where we all meet up. And... So we are the products of the interests of our youth, right? Especially the lot, we, a lot of the nostalgia pulls us back into some of the car purchases that we have. That's why I have two E36s outside. And uh, Geraldo, who is building these toy cars, I think is a great representation of, one, you know, powering through adversity, but then, two, uh, promoting the car culture and sort of the love uh, that is represented in the scene and I love to see it. I love to see it. And I really hope that the kids that he is selling these toys to end up being the future racers and the future show cars, the future tuners, the future ambassadors of the car culture. Cause I mean, you, you needed to stay. I mean, I, I do wish it went back to the heyday of the 
late 90s and early 2000s, but that was an entirely different era. It could happen. Maybe there's like an EV boom and all of a sudden people get back into customizing cars. Like EV cars get so dry and so boring, right? It's a cookie cutter out there in terms of all these different EV cars that are generally the same. They're all quiet. They all really make no noise. They're quick. But through that sort of vanillaing of automobiles, counterculture will be born. Inevitably, it it is always born. And cars were born of counterculture, right? And even racing was with NASCAR being born of uh, bootleggers. So there will always be a counterculture, and that might birth the next boom of the car world. Until then, I think we enjoy the current car community, at least here in SoCal. And I hope that wherever you're at and wherever you're listening to this, you're also experiencing the best in car culture. And car culture can be experienced in many ways. It can be experienced at a car meet, at a cars and coffee, at a track with a bunch of people, or it can also be experienced in your garage by yourself watching, you know, your buddy's YouTube channel on how to do something, or even, you know, someone that you caught, you caught in terms of the content creating content right creating toys like this guy there are many ways to participate and promote car culture so for those of you that take that make the effort that do the diys on the youtube that take the time to create content on social media and also those of you that are consuming that content and putting it in practice in your garages and keeping old shit boxes alive you guys you guys are the real car culture and yeah, so just if you see a takeover kid, just, you know, kind of slap him beside the head and say, look, you suck right now, but how about you come with me to a race or how about you come with me to a show? How about you come with me to Cars and Coffee? How about let's go drifting at Grange or Apple Valley Speedway now, right? Let me show you how to do it the proper way. Let's go to a skid pad. I think that's probably the only way we're going to get past this. Uh, and I think we do have somewhat of responsibility, but then it's also okay to shit on them because they deserve it. So, but maybe talk them out of it. That'd be a good chance. I'm not going to takeovers to do it, but if I hear some kid talking about going to takeovers and they're in earshot from me, I'm going to go talk to them. I need to also understand why it is they do this. It's probably going connected to sort of the counterculture phrase I talked about. There's always a rebellious nature to the, uh, these young people. Uh, but uh, there's a right way and a wrong way. And man, if we didn't have these takeovers, I think we might have a lot more liberties. Maybe not, but the EPA is definitely using them as an excuse to create more restrictions and especially carb out here in California. So we need to cut that out. There's already issues with like tuning, um, being, uh, prevented from happening, uh, in most of the country. Right now, a lot of these manufacturers of these defeat devices or override devices or reflashing are getting in trouble uh, for doing that because they're not allowed to sell it. Uh, because what? They, we're getting blamed for all the crap that's going out in those street corners. But anyway, I digress. This is about you. This is about the car people. Thank you all. And I think this is that is our episode for today. 
You can find us at 91octane.com. That is all letters, no numbers. Also, like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. If you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. Also, make sure to check out the merch at 91octane.com slash shop. It keeps us going. Thank you so much, and we'll catch you next week. Good night.